Chapter Eleven of Meridiana, The Adventures of Three Englishmen and Three Russians in South Africa. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Meridiana, The Adventures of Three Englishmen and Three Russians in South Africa by Jules Verne, translated by Ellen E. Frewer. Chapter 11. A Missing Companion In continuing the survey, the astronomers had to be on their guard against the serpents that infested the region, venomous mambas, ten to twelve feet long, whose bite would have been fatal. Four days after the passage of the rapid, the observers found themselves in a wooded country. The trees, however, were not so high as to interfere with their labors, and at all points rose eminences which afforded excellent sights for the posts and electric lamps. The district, lying considerably lower than the rest of the plain, was moist and fertile. Emery noticed thousands of Hottentot fig trees, whose sour fruit is much relished by the Bochesman. From the ground arose a soft odor from the Cucumoranti, a yellow fruit two or three inches long, growing from bulbous roots like the Colchicum, and eagerly devoured by the native children. Here, too, in this more-watered country, reappeared the fields of colocynths and borders of the mint so successfully naturalized in England. Notwithstanding its fertility, the country appeared little frequented by the wandering tribes, and not a kraal or a campfire was to be seen, yet water was abundant, forming some considerable streams and lagoons. The astronomers halted to await the caravan. The time fixed by Mokum had just expired, and if he had reckoned well, he would join them to-day. The day, however, passed on, and no Bochesman appeared. Sir John conjectured that the hunter had probably been obligated to ford further south than he had expected, since the river was unusually swollen. Another day passed, and the caravan had not appeared. The colonel became uneasy. He could not go on, and the delay might affect the success of the operations. Matthew Strux said that it had always been his wish to accompany the caravan, and that if his advice had been followed, they would not have found themselves in this predicament but he would not admit that the responsibility rested on the Russians. Colonel Everest began to protest against these insinuations, but Sir John interposed, saying that what was done could not be undone, and that all the recriminations in the world would make no difference. It was then decided that if the caravan did not appear on the following day, Emery and Zorn, under the guidance of the Bochesman, should start to ascertain the reason of the delay. For the rest of the day the rivals kept apart, and Sir John passed his time in beating the surrounding woods. He failed in finding any game, but from a naturalist's point of view he ought to have been satisfied, since he brought down two fine specimens of African birds. One was a sort of partridge, a francolin, thirteen inches long with short legs, dark grey back, red beak and claws, and elegant wings shaded with brown. The other bird, with a red throat and white tail, was a species of falcon. The Bochesman pioneer cleverly took off the skins in order that they should be preserved entire. The next day was half over, and the two young men were just about to start on their search when a distant bark arrested them. Soon Mokum, on his zebra, emerged at full speed from the thicket of aloes on the left and advanced towards the camp. Welcome, cried Sir John joyfully. We had almost given you up, and apart from you I should be unconsolable. I am only successful when you are with me. We will celebrate your return in a glass of usqueba. Mokum made no answer, but anxiously scanned and counted the Europeans. Colonel Evers perceived his perplexity, and as he was dismounting, said, 
for whom are you looking mokum for mr palander replied the bushman is he not with you said the colonel not now answered mokum i thought i should find him here with you he is lost at these words matthew strux stepped forward lost he cried he was confided to your care you are responsible for his safety and it is not enough to say he is lost mokum's face flushed and he answered impatiently why should you expect me to take care of one who can't take care of himself why blame me if mr palander is lost it is by his own folly twenty times i have found him absorbed in his figures and have brought him back to the caravan but the evening before lost he disappeared and i have not seen him since perhaps if you are so clever you can spy him out with your telescope the bushman would doubtless have become more irritable still if sir john had not pacified him matthew strux had not been able to get in a word but now turned round unexpectedly to the colonel saying i shall not abandon my countrymen i suppose that if sir john murray or mr emery were lost you would suspend operations and i don't see why you should do less for a russian than for an englishman mr strux cried the colonel folding his arms and fixing his eyes on his adversary do you wish to insult me why do you suppose that we will not seek this blundering calculator sir said strux yes blundering repeated the colonel and to return to what you said i maintain that any embarrassment to the progress of the operations from this circumstance would be due to the russians alone colonel cried strux with gleaming eyes your words are hasty my words on the contrary are well weighted let it be understood that operations are suspended until mr palander is found are you ready to start i was ready before you spoke a word answered strux sharply the caravan having now arrived the disputants each went to his wagon on the way sir john could not help saying it is lucky that the stupid fellow has not carried off the double register just what i was thinking said the colonel the englishman proceeded more strictly to interrogate mokum he told them the palander had been missing for two days and had last been seen alongside of the caravan about twelve miles from the encampment that after missing him he had once set out to seek for him but being unsuccessful in all his search had concluded that he must have made his way to his companions mokum proposed that they should now explore the woods to the northeast adding that they must not lose an hour if they wanted to find him alive knowing that no one could wander with impunity for two days in a country infested like that with wild beasts where anyone else could find a subsistence palander ever engrossed by his figures would inevitably die of starvation at one o'clock guided by the hunter they mounted and left the camp the grotesque attitudes of strux as he clung uneasily to his steed caused considerable diversion to his companions who however were polite enough to pass no remark before leaving the camp mokum asked the pioneer to lend him his keen-scented dog the sagacious animal after scenting a hat belonging to palander darted off in a northeasterly direction whilst his master urged him on by a peculiar whistle the little troop followed and soon disappeared in the underwood all the day the colonel and his companions followed the dog who seemed instinctively to know what was required of him they shouted they fired their guns but night came on when they had scoured the woods for five miles round and they were at length obliged to rest until the following day they spent the night in a grove before which the bushman had prudently kindled a wood fire some wild howls were heard by no means reassuring hours passed in arguing about palander and discussing plans for his assistance the english showed as much devotion as strux could desire 
and it was decided that all work should be adjourned until the Russian was found, alive or dead. After a weary night, the day dawned. The horses were saddled, and the little troop again followed the dog. Toward the northeast, they arrived at a district almost swampy in its character. The small watercourses increased in number, but they were easily forded, care being taken to avoid the crocodiles, of which Sir John, for the first time in his life, now saw some specimens. The bushman would not permit that time should be wasted in any attack upon the reptiles, and restrained Sir John, who was always on the quive to discharge a ball. Whenever a crocodile, snapping its prey with its formidable jaw, put its head out of the water, the horses set off on a gallop to escape. The troop of riders went on over woods, plains, and marshes, noting the most insignificant tokens. Here a broken bough, here a freshly trodden tuft of grass, or further on some inexplicable mark, but no trace of palander. When they had advanced ten miles north of the last encampment, and were about to turn southeast, the dog suddenly gave signs of agitation. He barked, and in an excited way wagged his tail. Sniffing the dry grass, he ran on a few steps, and returned to the same spot. "'The dog scents something!' exclaimed the bushman. "'It seems,' said Sir John, "'he is on a right track. "'Listen to his yelping. "'He seems to be talking to himself. "'He will be an invaluable creature if he scents out Palander.' Strux did not quite relish the way in which his countryman was treated as a head of game, but the important thing now was to find him, and they all waited to follow the dog as soon as he should be sure of the scent. Very soon the animal, with a loud yelp, bounded over the thicket and disappeared. The horses could not follow through the dense forest, but were obliged to take a circuitous path. The dog was certainly on the right track now. The only question was whether Palander was alive or dead. In a few minutes the yelping ceased, and the bushman and Sir John, who were in advance, were becoming uneasy, when suddenly the barking began again outside the forest, about half a mile away. The horses were spurred in that direction, and soon reached the confines of the marsh. The dog could distinctly be heard, but, on account of the lofty reeds, could not be seen. The riders dismounted and tied their horses to a tree. With difficulty they made their way through the reeds, and reached a large space covered with water and aquatic plants. In the lowest part lay the brown waters of a lagoon half a mile square. The dog stopped at the muddy edge and barked furiously. "'There he is!' cried Mokwum and sure enough, on a stump at the extremity of a sort of peninsula, sat Nicholas Palander, pencil in hand, and a notebook on his knees, wrapped in calculations. His friends could not suppress a cry. About twenty paces off, a number of crocodiles, quite unknown to him, lay watching, and evidently designing an attack. "'Make haste,' said Mokum in a low voice. "'I don't understand why these animals don't rush on him.' "'They are waiting till he is gamey,' said Sir John." alluding to the idea common among the natives that these reptiles never touch fresh meat. The bushman and Sir John, telling their companions to wait for them, passed round the lagoon, and reached the narrow isthmus by which alone they could get near Palander. They had not gone two hundred steps when the crocodiles, leaving the water, made straight towards their prey. Palander saw nothing, but went on writing. "'Be quick and calm,' whispered Mokum, "'or all is lost.' Both, kneeling down, aimed at the nearest reptiles, and fired. Two monsters rolled into the water with broken backs, and the rest simultaneously disappeared beneath the surface. At the sound of the guns, Palander raised his head. He recognized his companions, and ran towards them, waving his notebook, and, like the philosopher of old, exclaiming Eureka, he cried, I have found it! What have you found? asked Sir John. An error in the last decimal of a logarithm of James Wollstone's. It was a fact. The worthy man had discovered the error, 
and had secured a right to the prize offered by Wollstone's editor. For four days had the astronomer wandered in solitude. Truly Ampere, with his unrivaled gift of abstraction, could not have done better. End of chapter 11 Recording by Todd